Please turn your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. We'll begin at verse 8 and we'll continue to the end of the chapter in verse 15. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and bound him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the inspired record of the apostolic church. We pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened. We live in the same world, but we look to the same Savior, Lord. And so we pray that we would abide by the spirit of your servants of old. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The calling of the first deacons in Acts 16 marks another transition in the book of Acts. On the one hand, it is the resolution of a threat of division because of administrative problems in the church. You remember, the Hellenistic widows were not being cared for properly, and that was a threat to the church. It also shows the success of God's grace in blessing his people during what was undoubtedly a very tumultuous time. That's one end of the transition, what it brings to an end. On the other hand, Luke's narrative now is going to advance to portray the ministries of two of these deacons, Stephen and then Philip, and the result of the church's extension outside Jerusalem in evangelistic missionary activity. In chapter 8, Philip will be used greatly by God to take the gospel to Samaria. Philip's revival in Samaria is a fascinating chapter. But first, we have the martyrdom of Stephen, which is the event that precipitates it all. This new phase begins with the violent hostility against him. He's going to be put to death, and that's going to lead to a much more violent approach towards the church. Now, the effect of that, this intense persecution, is going to be, on the one hand, the scattering of the believers out from Jerusalem. It becomes so intense that they begin to be forced out of the city of Jerusalem, Uh, into places like Samaria. But the thing is that wherever the followers of Jesus went, they went preaching the gospel. So that in this way, Jesus' great commission began to be fulfilled. Jesus had promised them in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now this movement from Judea, Jerusalem to Judea, and then Samaria is going to be prompted by the persecution that is inspired by the witness of Stephen. That movement will indeed continue till it reaches the ends of the earth. 
Bruce Milne writes that Stephen's martyrdom laid the highway, which was to lead Christianity out of the dangerous, potentially stifling mental and geographical confinement of a mono-ethnic, monocultural enclosure in Jerusalem to become what it was always intended to be in the mind of God, a faith for all peoples, at all places, and in all times. Well, Acts 7 is going to record Stephen's remarkable sermon. It's actually the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and it's quite long. But first, we get a glimpse of Stephen's remarkable character in our passage. Here's the question, what enables someone to play the kind of significant role that Stephen will play? Well, the answer is found in this description, which actually goes back into the previous passage, beginning in verse 5 with a statement that Stephen was full of faith. Four things are said about Stephen. One is that he is full of faith. Now, of course, all Christians have faith. You can't be a Christian without faith. We're saved through faith in Jesus. Uh, But in saying that Stephen was full of faith, Luke refers to the the strength of his faith, the, the assurance that he possessed in his faith, his conviction regarding the truth of his faith. That is a valuable, important thing. I like to note the difference between a person's espoused faith on the one hand, and their operative, their practical, their lived faith on the other hand, and often they're quite different, very sadly. The, the espoused faith is, what, is the answers we give to questions. What do you believe about Jesus? I believe that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins. What do you believe he's going to do? Well, he's in heaven, he's going to come back now. That's our, and we're sincere about it. But what's, what happens Monday to Saturday? What happens when we are actually living out our lives? Here's the question. Can it be inferred from the way that we live, the way we think, the way we react to things, the way that we talk? Can it be inferred from those things that we believe the things that we espouse? Well, in many cases, the two are quite different. One of the most important things as we grow as Christians, as what we, what we really believe, we espouse it, that it would begin to actually shape because we, we believe it's true. I, many times I've had people come to me with a, a great conundrum in life, and, and I sometimes say, I'm not meaning to be cheeky. It's just what needs to be said. Well, what would you do if you believe what you actually believe is true? What, would you, what, 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 what if there was a sovereign God of love whose son died on the cross for your sins and he's coming back to end the age? It's amazing what a question like that will do to clarify our minds. Well, Stephen did not have a problem like that. He was full of faith. His espoused faith was his actual faith, his his operative faith, the faith he lived by and that shaped his life. He believed that God was sovereign over all things and therefore he did not fear man. He believed that this world is going to end with the return of Jesus and that heaven awaits all of us and life is short and eternity is long and therefore he consecrated his life for the sake of eternity. He believed that Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin who, whose, whose sole atonement, his finished work, is the one way by which we come to the Father and are forgiven. So he made himself a witness of that Jesus. He was full of faith. Now in contrast, you think of Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest at the end of the Gospels when he has to pay a price for public association with Jesus. There's a cost attached to it. Peter was not full of faith. He wavered. He shrank from the challenge of being publicly identified with Jesus. 
And yet after the resurrection and his restoration, Jesus lovingly restores Peter. And then especially the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, how different Peter was. Then he is full of faith. Well, Stephen was full of faith. He does not shrink from the controversy for Jesus' sake. He boldly proclaims the gospel truth, yes, even at the cost of his own life. David Williams comments, his faith was not different in kind from the faith that all Christians have, but it was exceptional in the extent to which he was willing to trust Christ. That was the thing. The extent to which he was willing to trust Christ, to take him at his word and to risk all for Jesus' sake. Stephen was full of faith. Also going back to verse 5, we're told that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now that statement, as well as full of faith, was not made exclusively of Stephen. It wasn't just him. It was made regarding the seven deacons as a whole. It was one of their qualifications. Moreover, this statement that he was full of the Holy Spirit was made of all believers as a result of the Pentecost outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 verse 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 4 verse 8, we see Peter speaking boldly before the Sanhedrin. Remember, he'd been arrested, then they let him go, then he was out preaching again. They brought him back and were told as he's boldly proclaiming Jesus as the, as the Lord and Messiah that he was full, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, given that connection with Peter, we might think this description speaks of the, of the gifts, the spiritual giftedness that Stephen displays when he preaches. But I think the context most strongly suggests that Stephen, like Peter, was filled with the Spirit so that he was bold in his faith. He was bold to speak for the Lord, to proclaim the gospel when confronted by threats and crises. Well, the same thing Christians will experience. We wonder, how will I do when a moment of truth comes? Stephen may have wondered that. And what he found was, that when he, needed, when he needed the equipping, God sent the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. is not something he attained. It was something given to him. And the same will be true for us. I mean, what will I do if we have a medical emergency? What will I do if I have a vocational crisis? We should trust that the Lord will give us a fullness of his Spirit so that we trust in him. Now, another way to understand Stephen's Spirit fullness is to say that he had become spiritually mature. And I think maybe this is what's ultimately being said. He had rapidly grown to a state of spiritual maturity. Donald McLeod writes of Stephen, his whole character, his relationships, his emotions, his ambitions, his reactions remained under the Holy Spirit's control. This is the Christian ideal, and it cannot be secured by any single experience. It can only be secured by an unending succession of replenishments. Um, Cloud's referring to John 1.16, which says, From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. One experience of grace after another, the, the, the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit as we grow closer to the Lord. Now, that is something we all can have. I think of Jesus' teaching on prayer where he teaches us we should be praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I love Jesus' teaching on prayer in Luke 11. It's a couple of parables on prayers. And then, and then Jesus makes a comparison between God the Father's kindness and generosity in answering our prayers to the way that a good father will respond to the needs of his children. And Jesus concludes by saying, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will their heavenly father, and we're expecting him to say, actually Matthew's version does say this, how much more will your heavenly father give you better gifts? He might have said that, but he actually says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Plainly, we are to ask for the greatest of God's gifts. What is the greatest of God's gifts to uh, his people in this world? It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we would be filled for the Holy Spirit. We should pray for the Spirit, and Jesus says your loving Heavenly Father is sure to send him. Now, thirdly, Stephen is said to have been full of grace, verse 8. Now, like faith, grace is essential to salvation for anyone, So can there be a fuller measure of grace? Well, the answer seems to be that the emphasis here is on the gracious character displayed in Stephen's life. He was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in a very full extent, he had become a gracious person. Ajith Fernando writes, Stephen had let God's grace impact him so much that it had made him a gracious person. G. Campbell Morgan writes that Stephen possessed sweetness and strength. Now, that's something we should aspire to. Give me sweetness and strength merged into one personality. In a humorous way, I think of the quip once made by John Wesley, of all people. He says, one of the advantages of the grace of God is it makes a man a gentleman without the need for a dancing master. (laughs) It's the true grace. It's the true gentlemanly the true generosity of spirit. That's what Stephen had become like. Whatever his natural personality was, we don't know. He, he may have had this personality or that. He, he's still the old Stephen in that respect, but he'd become easy and pleasurable to be around. He combined humility, kindness, and gentleness to the strength of conviction. Kent Hughes writes, Stephen possessed a charm of character that touched even those who did not know its source. Uh, that's what we should be like as we walk with Jesus. People who don't even know that we're Christians should notice that there is a grace about our lives. Now, fourthly, we're told that Stephen was full of power. He was filled with faith. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace, and he was full of power. Now, we know the meaning here because uh, Luke goes on and tells us that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Acts 6, verse 8. That's a very interesting thing. Previous to this, we're told of, we're shown the apostles performing miracles, but now we have Stephen performing miracles. And that leads to the question, should he be considered one of the apostles? The answer is no. He, is, he should be considered an apostolic delegate. There are a number of those that we read of, some of whom wrote scripture. We think of Luke himself as an apostolic delegate. He's operating within the sphere of an apostle. He's exercising the authority on behalf of the apostle. We think of Barnabas in Acts 14. We'll see that he is going to perform miracles with Paul, but he is never considered an apostle. But he was filled with power. Well, clearly then, Stephen was an extraordinary person, who was produced by extraordinary grace in extraordinary times. And yet everything we see in him, we should aspire to for our lives in an ordinary way. These things can be true of us. They should be true of us. These are the things, this, this, when someone says, what is your ambition in life? And it's more than outward things. Nothing wrong with having vocational ambitions or ministry ambitions. Our chief ambition should be in our, about our character. 
I long to be full of faith. I long to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I long to be full of grace. I long for the power, not, not of an apostle or an apostolic delegate, but the kind of power that transforms us inwardly, that where we have a prayer life that makes a difference, where our witness to the gospel, because of the truth of God's word, is mighty in his strength. Now, it seems that Stephen had been a member of a particularly fervent synagogue in Jerusalem that is known, we learn of it in verse 9, it's known as a synagogue of freedmen. Now, there's a story behind this. In 63 BC, the Roman general, Pompey the Great, had conquered Jerusalem. And it's a very terrible moment in the history of the Jewish people. Pompey actually went into the Holy of Holies. It was not a very good thing. And he conquered the city. That's why they were still under Roman occupation, because Pompey the Great had conquered them. And he took a lot of slaves. So that's how you financed your army as a Roman general. You, 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 you conquered a city, and you sacked it, and then you took a, a portion of its population. In some cases, Caesar did this in Gaul the entire population, and you sold them into slavery, and you got the money. And Pompey did this in Jerusalem. A good number of the Jewish people were sold into slaves. That was in 63 B.C., almost 100 years, actually more than 100 years before the time when Luke writes. And what had happened was a number of these Jewish men had been able to buy their freedom, and they had come back to Jerusalem, and they formed a synagogue. And these are the, that synagogue had its descendants. And these were Hellenistic Jews. These were not Hebrew-speaking Jews. These were Hellenistic Jews who came from the diaspora who were the descendants of those men taken to Rome as slaves, and now they had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. We're told that it was included Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. By the way, it's very interesting. It is possible, it is suggestive, was this the Apostle Paul's synagogue? Because Cilicia is where Tarsus is. He's, Paul was from Cilicia. Now, it's hard to know. He calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I don't think Paul would have taken it kindly in his pre-converted state to be called a Hellenistic Jew. But he was not from Jerusalem. It is possible, at least, that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was one of the members of the, the synagogue. The fact that he participates in Stephen's uh, murder is even more suggestive. Now, it's very interesting that uh, you think, why, why are there synagogues in Jerusalem, the temples in Jerusalem? Well, they were not rivals to the temple, but they were really, they were study centers. They were places for prayer and for the study of the scripture and for the encouragement in faith. Now, it seems that the Freedmen's Synagogue was particularly fervent in, in part because they were second class. They were diaspora Jews. They were Hellenistic Jews, and this made them try to earn their way by being particularly fervent. Now, during the meetings of this synagogue, Stephen clearly had been proclaiming Jesus Christ. He'd been declaring Christ as the Son of God and the Savior. He was expounding the Old Testament scriptures in a way that showed their fulfillment in Christ. Now, this preaching prompted discussion. He goes and he does this kind of thing. These are the kind of people who study the scriptures and have opinions about them. We, many of us, are the same way today. And the disagreement uh, took place, and that led to a full-on dispute. Verse 9, some members rose up and disputed with Stephen. And yet we're told in verse 10 that facing a person like him, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, we're not told exactly where his wisdom came from, but we know where it came from. It came from the Holy Scriptures. You want to be wise 
in a theological discussion, then stick to the scriptures. Some of the greatest wisdom was given by John Calvin. He said, let, let, us, let, let, let us go as far as God's word goes, absolutely as far as God's word goes, but then not one step further. Let the scriptures be our guide and our handrail in all things. And if we will do that, avoiding speculation, we will be wise and careful. But he also was filled with the Holy Spirit for this. And he had an insight into the meaning of the Old Testament as it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now you remember that Jesus himself had done a little seminary, a 40-day instruction of the apostles, which largely figured on, you get it from the apostles' preaching, how the Old Testament is fulfilled in his coming. Stephen had picked up on this, and he's teaching it within this synagogue. Now, based on the sermon that follows in chapter 7, we can be certain that he spoke from the Scriptures. Stephen would have shown that the promises had come true in Christ. He would have shown how the types of the Old Testament were pointing forward to him and find their fulfillment in Jesus, that he is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the true king. He would have shown how Jesus had fulfilled in great detail the prophecies of the given that would identify the promised Messiah. He would have shown how Jesus accomplished the work of salvation which the scriptures taught were necessary. Now to these arguments, it's no surprise that his opponents had no answer. The reason they had no answer was because there was no answer. I think particularly of the prophecies of Jesus Christ, they are rather impressive, as you know. They are designed to be rather impressive. Jesus fulfills the entirety of the Old Testament. Moreover, he had experienced the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen when his servants bore testimony before the world and its hostility. Luke twenty-one fifteen, Jesus said, when that happens, when you stand before the hostile powers, when you're dragged before the governors and the rulers and the religious authorities, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And that is exactly what happened. Stephen's witness to Jesus from the scriptures was attended by the power of the Holy Spirit whose inspired testimony could not be overthrown. Fernando comments, speaking out of the Jewish worldview, using the Jewish scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Stephen speaks in a way that cuts to the heart of their thinking and they cannot refute him. They have no answer to give to him. Now, I think it was likely that in this way Stephen would have won Uh, some converts out of that synagogue by his teaching of the Holy Scriptures. And yet, among the majority who did not believe, the result was a hardened opposition, a great hatred towards them. I think Bruce Milne is right when he points out that few experiences are as destabilizing to one's self-worth and identity and so evocative of a bitter desire for revenge than to be comprehensively routed in a public dialogue. That's, that's true. The Protestant Reformation, you may know, involved a lot of disputations where a Roman Catholic leader would come and one of the reformers, Holdrick Zwingli or, or, you know, or Ecolampadius, someone like that, or, or, or Luther himself, would come and they would dispute the things. And uh, many, many whole cities were persuaded to join the Reformation by the clear teaching of the scriptures, but the opposition was hardened. 
by the humiliation of public defeat. Now, so it was in Stephen's case. It's interesting. His opponents would have accepted his premise, namely that the scripture is true, that it is God's word. The premise they would have shared, if you can prove it from the scripture, then we must believe it. But the problem was they could not accept his conclusions because of the what to them was a scandalous and a revolutionary message. Well, the thing, the last thing that a Hellenistic synagogue in Jerusalem needed or thought that they needed, given the suspicion with which they were already held by the Hebrew synagogues, were new teachings contrary to those of the religious establishment. That's the way the people were thinking. And so when this happens in the freedman synagogue, you have Stephen giving teachings that are not going to be popular with the Sanhedrin and the, and the priests at the temple The result was a concerted smear campaign orchestrated against him. As we look at the treatment of Stephen, we're going to be reminded of the approach to Jesus Christ. The trial, the sham trial that was attempting to convict Jesus and in fact led to the cross. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. They use false witnesses against Jesus. They will do the same against Stephen. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now that's, a, that's an important and serious charge in the Jerusalem of that time. Uh, in fact, it was interesting about that charge and the reason for that charge is that the Jewish leaders were authorized to execute the sentence of death only on a narrow band of criminal charges, namely this one. By the way, this is what they tried to do with Jesus. They tried to get Jesus on the charge of blasphemy so that they could execute him himself. They failed in Jesus' case. They will have better success when it comes to Stephen. Now, the accusations are two main ones. They consist of speaking blasphemy against this holy place and the law. That is, blasphemy against the temple and the five books of Moses, verse 13. Now, it's not hard to imagine what Stephen might have taught when when that teaching was twisted, of course, by malicious instigators. We can imagine easily the kinds of things he would have taught that led to the charge. We think of the temple. His accusers, look at verse 14. Here's what they say. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Well, might he have said that? Well, he might have said something like that. He would have taught how the temple was fulfilled and set aside by the coming of Jesus Christ. He certainly would have taught that. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The temple was a symbol of God with us. The symbol is now replaced by the coming of the reality. Jesus is God with us. The temple sacrifices were to be abrogated because why? Because what they had been pointing to had happened. The once for all atoning death of the Lamb of God had come. Therefore, it was no longer right for the daily and the weekly blood sacrifices that the temple performed on which the people were relying. They were no longer valid. Hebrews 10 will teach all of those things. The curtain in the holy place needed to come down. In fact, it had come down. We're told in the Gospels that the moment when Jesus died, the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. 
No man could have done that. That temple symbolized the separation between the holy God and his sinful people because the true sacrifice of propitiation had not yet been made. That's what the symbolism was. But it had been made, and God himself tore the curtain. Of course, what did they do? They sewed it back together and put it back up. And so he he conceives even of pointing this out, that there is now no barrier uh, to our full communion with the holiness of God. In fact, one of the accusations against Jesus, Mark fourteen fifty eight, was the thing that they said of Stephen. They said, Jesus had said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. What's interesting is that that's one of the charges against Jesus. You actually never find Jesus saying that in so many words. In John's gospel, he comes close. But the substance of it is nonetheless true. Jesus was speaking figuratively about his crucifixion and then about the resurrection that would follow. And the result would be the fulfillment of all the symbolism so that it was now set aside. That what In the New Testament, Peter not only describes Christ as a temple, but he says that we together as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. The temple is Christ and his people where God dwells by the reality of the Holy Spirit. Well, a misrepresented version of what Stephen had said might be highly offensive in Jerusalem. It would have upset the religious hierarchy. It would have have harmed the economy, the economy of Jerusalem, largely centered on the temple and all the logistics that went into it, including the money changers that Jesus had, had, had cleansed from it, but they put back. And so if Stephen is going to be speaking against the temple, here's the thing, that would change what had previously been the favorable attitude of the common people towards the Christian. Here's what's going on. It's a very clever tactic. This is now really revolutionary things. It's going to ruin your jobs, your livelihoods, if the temple gets torn down, and it will harden the leading hierarchy in the city. If what Stephen said was true, then the temple service would be stopped. There would be no more ritual sacrifices of lambs. The people would instead look in faith to Jesus. By the way, all of these things are going to happen to the temple. Seeing as how they did not do it in AD 70, God did do it in the destruction of that city as Jesus had prophesied. And so all of these realities were true. But for those who did not believe in Jesus, Stephen's argument challenged, he was challenging the validity of the whole system of of the temple and of its activities, the whole center of Jewish culture. This Christian movement is now becoming dangerous. This was the argument that's going to lead to a violent phase of persecution. So much for his blasphemy against the temple now what about the charge that he was speaking against moses and the law verse 11 and verse 13 well in verse 14 we get the evidence that he was reporting that this teaching will change the customs that moses delivered to us well jesus denied that he was against the law of moses Anyone who teaches that the gospel is against the law, that Jesus came to tear down the law, has the problem with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That fulfillment is through the new covenant that he brings to to replace the, the broken old covenant. We've been studying the gospel of Mark, and one thing we've noticed is that Jesus is actually not against the law. 
He's against the human traditions that actually corrupted the law and made its practice a burden to the people, but that had become the rule of a religious liberty. Jesus, for instance, did not set aside the Ten Commandments. Do not say as a Christian, well, now that Christ has come, the Ten Commandments are no more. Why would, how would that be? It's the unchanging view of God's moral quality. His own character cannot be changed. Jesus affirms all ten, not nine, all 10 of the Ten Commandments are authoritatively confirmed in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are as valid for us as an expression of God's will, his definition of what transgression is as it ever was. Only the ceremonial law with its rituals and sacrifices were to be abrogated for the simple reason that they had been fulfilled. The thing they symbolized has happened. No longer were the people to trust this symbol, but the reality The Lamb of God had come. He had taken away the sin of the world through the blood of his cross. He was not speaking against the law. Now that Stephen had actually said nothing that blasphemed God's word or was in any way destructive to the law given by Moses can be seen in the methods his accusers found necessary. Verse 12, they secretly instigated men to make the accusations. That allowed them to seize Stephen and bring him before the council, verse 12. And then his accusers resorted to false witnesses in making their case. They set up false witnesses who put the worst possible construction on the things that he had said so as to make it hostile towards the Old Testament, towards the law, towards the temple. Well, so much, by the way, for reverence for God's law. By the way, in all of our proceedings, if we have to secretly have secret meetings... We're going to instigate against a person. I'm sorry to say these things happen in the courts of the church. Secret meetings, we'll put it that way. We'll, we'll cast it in those terms. If we have to have false witnesses, we need to rethink what we are doing and the fitness of our case. This was not reverence for God's law. It's clear that Stephen will receive the same kind of justice that Jesus received in the conspiracy that led to his cross. Well, Stephen's response to these charges is going to have to wait for the next chapter. But we see him at the end of Acts 6, dragged before his accusers, standing before these hostile powers, and he is the same Stephen he was before. He's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace. He's full of power. And we realize at the end of the chapter that we have nothing to fear for God's servant We'd like to think to ourselves, oh, wouldn't it be great to see what he actually looked like, to have been there. You have artistic renderings, and they never do justice. They never can do justice. What would it be like to see a man standing in such courage before the hostile powers of the world? Well, the chapter closes by giving us a sense of what that would have looked like, a sense of Stephen's grace-filled demeanor in a most remarkable description, verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His face was like the face of an angel. Now, I suppose we have different ideas of what that would be. Some would see him as a juvenile cherubim. That's surely not right. Others would see him in a burning intensity like the the seraphim of Isaiah 6. Those were angels. And so all people were awed before him. I don't think that's what's being said either. Did he experience a supernatural empowerment so that he no longer looked human? I think that is not likely. I think Harry Ironside gets it right. 
when he suggests that these same qualities of faith, grace, the spirit-imbued power that we've already seen were now enhanced, yes, by God's supernatural provision. Ironside says this, Stuart, Stephen stood there looking upon them with a benign countenance, full of love and trust and peace and confidence, undisturbed by all the bitter things that were being said, his heart not moved to malice because of their hatred toward him, but happy in the consciousness that he was there because he was the servant, the faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, there is one other person in Scripture who we were told the, the word like an angel is not used, but we are told that his face visibly signed, and guess who it is? It's Moses of all people. Very ironic, given the charges against Stephen. When Moses in Exodus 34 came down from the mountain where he'd been for 40 days in the presence of God, receiving none other than the law, he came down in Exodus 34:29 says that his face shone visibly with light. See, this serves as a validation that Stephen is not opposed to Moses. Moses is not opposed to Stephen and the law. It shows his validity as God's servant and Christ's witness. And like Moses, Stephen's face shone because of his communion with Jesus Christ through faith. Moses' face shone because he was in the presence of God. And over time, that, it's kind of, there's, a, there's a doctrine about that, but the shining of his face lessened. He had to cover it. But Stephen spent his time in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that communion, and yes, it's God's validation of his servant and his witness, a portion of the divine glory is reflected in him. Uh, R.C. Sproul points out that psychologists would expect something entirely different. And they've noted, they actually have studies on this, when someone stares at you intensely, it almost always provokes a negative reaction in you. You start to become, particularly when several people or even many people are all staring intensely at your face, uh, the studies show that Christian, human beings become anxious and they become nervous and if it keeps up, they become hostile and their face starts to reflect the, what they're attributing to the people who are staring at them, namely corruption, hostility, treachery, those sorts of things. Well, how interesting it is in that very setting, by that rule, we would expect Stephen's face to become increasingly tight, maybe even contorted as he responded to these malicious faces staring at him. Why did he instead bear the face of an angel? Well, Sproul answers, Stephen was not at that moment reflecting the ugliness and the horror reflected in the faces of his accusers. But it was the grace and the loveliness of Christ who was on his mind. He was seeing Jesus. It's interesting, when we get to the end of the chapter 7, when Stephen is being put to death, he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It was not only then, it was here at the beginning. His eyes were fixed on the Lord Jesus and his countenance, which so validated him, reflected not the ugliness of the world that hated him, not a resentment for the injustice being perpetrated upon him. The writer of Hebrews gives us the same suggestion. He says, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. John says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It's not a victory of hatred. It's a victory of peace and joy and righteousness, peace and joy, faith, hope, and love all through the Holy Spirit. How do we gain this face of an angel, or at least our version of it? By thinking of Jesus, let us fix our eyes on him. And what will we see? We won't see the hatred of the world. We'll see the amazing grace of a holy God who loved us. He loved us. He sent his son, and that son died for our sins. And where is he now? He's at the right hand of the throne of the Father, and it is his grace, his mercy, his love, his power for righteousness that will be reflected in us. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he can do in the life of a man or a woman. How we become like him and, and his mercy, his grace, his, his power is reflected in our lives. Lord, we don't become like him in terms of deity, but we become his servants. We become his witnesses. We become lamps on which his light shines and from which it is reflected to the world. And so we thank you for your work in the life of Stephen. And Lord, we know there is a once-for-allness to the book of Acts. It's a certain time in redemptive history. It's a certain people. You're doing a certain work then. And yet, Lord, we are also your people. We pray that you would do these things in us. Cause us to be strengthened in faith. Oh, Lord, why should it not be said of us that we are full of faith? Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, particularly in the moments of trial, cause us to stand for Jesus because of your filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Make us full of your grace. Uh, Father, give us power to be true to Jesus and so that our witness will proclaim his truth in a mighty way into the darkness of this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.